0: Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones used to say that the biggest mistake a pastor can make is assuming the salvation of his own congregation. There are always unsaved people sitting in church, and they are usually among the most receptive people to the message of the gospel. So Paul begins there. His habit was to begin preaching in the local synagogue, which you could do because it was customary to invite any qualified visitor to offer a message. Paul was certainly qualified. And he took advantage of that opportunity. It appears that he preached for about three weeks in the synagogue. And then, as was often the case, he was kicked out. And then, as was often the case, he took a bunch of converts with him and started a church in someone else's home. Now, it's not hard to imagine why that was so incredibly disruptive. Imagine if a visiting pastor preaching in your home church for three weeks while your pastor was on vacation was saying things that you'd never heard, presenting the truth in in a, in a way you'd never heard before. Then imagine that your elders and your returning senior pastor kicked him out and banned him from ever returning. Then imagine that half your congregation walked out the door and started meeting in the home of the former chair of the board. That is exactly what we see happening in these stories. Paul was turning the world upside down. And the world wasn't taking it lying down. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter.
1: I'm your host, Woody Woodland. The message of the gospel was massively disruptive in the ancient world. It challenged the consensus. It questioned all the assumptions and it turned whole communities upside down. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter.
0: Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Acts 17. We're in the middle of Luke's narrative of Paul's second missionary journey. In the last chapter, we saw Paul and Silas arrested and beaten for preaching the gospel in Philippi. It was mob justice, and there was no due process. And Paul made the magistrates aware of his Roman citizenship and forced them to apologize likely in order to provide some protection in precedence for the new believers in the region. However, they are asked to leave, and having secured what protection he could for the new church, Paul and his companions now hit the road once again. Chapter 17 carries on the story as they journey westward and southward through Macedonia. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Let's pause here and just appreciate the resilience of the Apostle Paul. It was about 160 kilometers from Philippi to Thessalonica, and Paul and Silas walked that shortly after having been beaten with rods by the city magistrates. That's remarkable in and of itself. And that helps us appreciate what Paul says later when he writes a follow-up letter to the church that was eventually established in Thessalonica. He says in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 2, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. How many times have you just read over those verses, that verse and not fully visualized or appreciated what's actually being said here? Paul has just been beaten and abused and it took strength from God just to get him 160 kilometers down the road, let alone to get him back up into the pulpit. I think it's useful to see that. We need to see the resilience and the empowerment that must inevitably characterize true gospel ministry. To do God's work in this fallen world, you're going to need generous and continual spiritual provision. Thanks be to God. Paul has that in this story. He limps out of the frying pan of Philippi, and he leaps into the fire in Thessalonica. He goes right back into the synagogue next Sabbath morning. Now, I think that's worth seeing as well. Paul says, even after saying in 1346 that he was taking the gospel to the Gentiles, nevertheless, even still, we see here in chapter 17 that it is his habit to begin evangelistic campaigns by preaching in the Jewish synagogue. I think that's worth seeing because many people are attracted to the sort of preaching that Paul models for us at the end of Acts 17 when he's preaching on Mars Hill to a bunch of pagan unbelievers. There are whole churches and movements named after that style of engagement. But we should just note that Paul is not a one-trick pony. He doesn't have just one style, one approach. In fact, he says that it is his habit, his default pattern is to begin in the synagogue. Listen, friends, understand this. A lot of evangelism happens inside the walls of the church. Yes, of course, a lot happens out in the marketplace and in the public square. Absolutely. But a great number of people hear the gospel and get converted when the covenant people gather together to sit under the word of God. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say, That the biggest mistake a pastor can make is assuming the salvation of his own congregation. There are always unsaved people sitting in church and they are usually among the most receptive people to the message of the gospel. So Paul begins there. His habit was to begin preaching in the local synagogue, which you could do because it was customary to invite any qualified visitor to offer a message. Paul was certainly qualified And he took advantage of that opportunity. It appears that he preached for about three weeks in the synagogue. And then, as was often the case, he was kicked out. And then, as was often the case, he took a bunch of converts with him and started a church in someone else's home. Now, it's not hard to imagine why that was so incredibly disruptive. Imagine if a visiting pastor preaching in your home church for three weeks while your pastor was on vacation was saying things that you'd never heard, presenting the truth in, in, a, in a way you'd never heard before. Then imagine that your elders and your returning senior pastor kicked him out and banned him from ever returning. Then imagine that half your congregation walked out the door and started meeting in the home of the former chair of the board. That is exactly what we see happening in these stories. Paul was turning the world upside down and the world wasn't taking it lying down.
1: Pastor Paul, I know we're fairly early on in the program audio here, but I want to jump in quickly because I'd like to dig a little deeper into that reference you provided from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. You referred to him as saying something to the effect that the biggest mistake pastors can make is
0: assuming the salvation of his own congregation. Did I get that right? Yes, but... If you listen to a lot of Lloyd-Jones, you recognize that he often referred to things as, you know, the biggest challenge or the most important thing for us to understand. And so he may not have meant that this was the absolute biggest mistake a pastor could make, because obviously we could probably all think of bigger mistakes than that. But it is a big one, and I would agree it's an important one.
1: Okay, so let's talk about that for a minute.
0: Are you saying that
1: we shouldn't take people at face value if they say that they're a Christian? I mean, that sounds
0: almost borderline offensive it's probably (laughs) more than borderline offensive (laughs) to christians in this culture today but to be honest with you christians are offended by lots of things that they probably shouldn't be and the notion that god doesn't necessarily take us at our word shouldn't be surprising to anyone who's ever read the bible after all jesus said not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's Matthew seven twenty-one to 23. So Jesus says that on judgment day, there will be many people who said they were Christians, who, who maybe even believed they were Christians, but who actually weren't. Jesus said that. And the apostle Paul clearly believed that because he said to his people, Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. That's 2nd Corinthians 3 13 5. So Paul told people not to trust their own feelings as to whether they were truly saved. He told them to test themselves.
1: And so how exactly would a person do that? So suppose one of our listeners out there is saying, Hey, wait a minute. I say that I'm a Christian. I believe that I'm a Christian, but now I'm supposed to test
0: myself? How in the world do I do that? Well, a couple things come to mind based on my reading of the Bible. I would start by looking for change. The Apostle Paul, in places like 2 Corinthians 3, 18, expressed an expectation that all truly saved people would change, slowly but surely, by one degree of glory to the next, into the same image as Jesus Christ, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So look at yourself today relative to who you were at the time of your conversion. Has there been change? Are you slowly but surely leaving your sin and addiction behind and becoming more like Jesus? Yes or no? If the answer is no, then I would be very concerned because Paul said that this was the experience of all true believers. Mm,
1: Okay. You said a couple of things came to your mind. That's, that's one thing.
0: Yeah, you could also check your heart toward other believers because Jesus and the Apostle John seem to assume that an instinctive love for other believers would be characteristic of all truly saved people. So if, if you don't really like Christians and, and you feel no real compulsion to gather together with other believers and you have no real desire to serve other believers, that to me also would be a huge red flag. Mm. Now,
1: to be clear, you aren't saying that if a person does these things, if he changes, if he loves other Christians, that he will earn his salvation. You're not saying that, are you?
0: No, no. I'm, I'm not saying that you will earn your salvation by doing these things. I am saying that you will show your salvation, saved people do these things—not to get saved, but because they are saved. This is what saved people do: they grow into the image of Christ and they incline in love toward other believers. If if that's not true of you, then you are likely not saved, and you need to go back to the foot of the cross and start again.
1: Hmm, yeah, I think that's really good advice. Let's jump back into the
0: story now at verse five. And saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. You see in the pattern? Again and again. Paul went into a church, a gathering of believers in God who were reading the Old Testament and looking for the one who is to come. They would, have, of course, been mostly Jews, but also some proselytes thats that are Gentiles who've taken circumcision and have converted, and then also this sort of fringe or penumbra of what we call fabuminoi, uh, God-fearing Gentiles. And he would preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and inevitably it would divide the church. It would start a riot or an upheaval, and Paul would get run out of town, whereupon he would dust himself off and do it all over again a few miles down the road. That's the pattern. That's what's going on here. Paul gets kicked out of Thessalonica, and he takes up shop in the next town down the road, the city of Berea. He goes there, and once again, he begins preaching in the synagogue. Verse 11 says, now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. These Bereans are often held up as a model of reasoned inquiry, and rightly so. Unlike the flash mob of Thessalonica, these noble or generous Bereans want to take their time and search the scriptures and really think their way through what Paul is telling them. Praise God for their example. In this age of instantaneous outrage and social media lynch mobs, we need some more people, particularly Christians, who are willing to slow down and think carefully and biblically through complex issues. Good On them. That's exactly right. That's how we ought to be doing it. Because as always, the barbarians are knocking at the gates. Verse 13 says But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after seeing, or after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This brings us to the part of this chapter that we are likely most familiar with. Paul was probably just supposed to wait there in Athens and have a sort of vacation and recover from his wounds, but of course, that isn't what he did. Verse 16 says, Now, While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now, let's just pause and see that. Even in Athens, Paul began in the synagogue. He wanted to start with those who had the most background. That was almost certainly going to be the most fertile soil. Those people would at least know the basic framework. They would know about God, about sin, and about a promised solution to the problem of sin and the hope of being reconciled back to God and back to our original design and calling. That's the story that Jesus makes sense within. And obviously, those are the people best prepared to hear and respond to the gospel. So Paul started there, and then he overflowed into the marketplace. Verse 18 says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in doing nothing except telling or hearing something new. So here we see Paul being invited into the public square. They recognized that he was saying something different. By the way, hear that. If you want an audience in the public square, you can't just mimic everything you hear in the public square, you have to be saying something different, something otherworldly. Paul was, and the people in the public square wanted to understand what that was. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I, as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Now, whole books have been written on Paul's speech on Mars Hill. Mars Hill, by the way, is just another name for the Areopagus. Mars and Ares are two different names for the same pagan god. But whatever you call it, the address that Paul gives on that hill has been taken as a pattern for engagement with men and women who have little to no familiarity with the basic biblical worldview. D.A. Carson puts it this way. He says, In a world of infinite gods, often supported by one pantheistic deity, cyclical views of history, sub-biblical understandings of sin, multiplied idolatry, dualism that declares all that is material to be bad and all that is spiritual to be good, tribal deities and not a little superstition, Paul paints a worldview of the true God, a linear view of history, the nature of sin and idolatry, impending judgment, the unity of the human race, and the oneness of God, all as the necessary framework without which his proclamation of Jesus makes no sense. Closed quote. Are you hearing that? Paul's speech on the Areopagus is essentially... Pre-evangelism, when you're speaking to people with little to no familiarity with the biblical worldview, this is the sort of stuff you have to talk about before you get to Jesus. If they don't know that there is a God who's sovereign over all, if they don't know that human beings were supposed to be under God and over, over everything else, if they don't know about the fall, which explains why we are not now the way we sense we should be, then how in the world are they going to make sense of Jesus? They'll just turn Jesus into an idol or a teacher or a self-help guru that will fit in very nicely beside all their other gods. So you have to start at the beginning and you have to talk about the end. Because if you don't tell people that there is a judgment coming then you haven't told them the truth about who Jesus is and why he has come in the first place. The job of the evangelist is to talk about the Jesus that fits into the story, the story about who God is and who we are and how God has saved us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, if you're speaking to people who know the story, then you just talk about Jesus. Now, make sure it's The Jesus of the Bible, mind you. But if you are talking to people who don't know any of that other stuff, then of course you tell them the story and then you give them Jesus, right? He's the climax. He's the hero and he's the point. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, I'm
1: curious about that story there of Paul preaching to the pagans on Mars Hill. We do often point to that as the pattern for how we should do evangelism, even though, as you say, an awful lot of the evangelism in Acts takes place in the synagogue with people who would have thought they were already believers. Yeah, that's right. So even still, obviously, this story about Mars Hill is in the Bible for a reason, and you suggest in the program audio that it is there to give us a blueprint for how to do, quote, pre-evangelism. You say that sometimes there are things we have to talk about before we talk to people about Jesus. Maybe unpack that for me a little bit here, because I guess in my mind, the whole point of evangelism is to talk to people about Jesus.
0: Yeah, and and of course, you're absolutely right. But what if the person you're talking to has no concept of God? What if they have no concept of sin or no concept of evil or no concept of corruption? What if they think that we're all computers made out of meat in a meaningless world hurtling pointlessly toward eventual obliteration? What if that is their understanding of reality? Well, obviously in that scenario, there may be some things you want to talk about first. Not because they're more important than Jesus. Nothing is more important than Jesus. But because you might have to talk about those things so as to build a conceptual framework in which Jesus can be presented as the Savior and Redeemer of the world.
1: All right. Well, that that makes sense. I guess this is what people sometimes refer to as apologetics, right?
0: Yeah, it's one form of what people typically call apologetics. There are a couple of different versions of that discipline. But in general, apologetics is about engaging with the common objections that people in your culture will have to overcome in order to engage in meaningful conversations about Jesus. In Acts 17... Paul used some of their poetry and philosophy. He started with some of their assumptions about common humanity, and he addressed some of their objections with Christian doctrine, things like sovereignty, resurrection and judgment, Also as to prepare the way for a meaningful dialogue about Jesus. The goal is always to talk about Jesus. But sometimes you have to talk about other stuff first in order to get there.
1: All right, that makes a lot of sense. I'd love to talk more about that, but unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then.
0: Your word is
1: a lamp unto my feet.